0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: So before we get started, we're going to be hearing from our partners in the health plan world, but we have some other partners that I also want to thank as we're waiting for our partners to get to their seats. When I mentioned earlier in the morning that mentorship and leadership is a huge part of how we are working with our faculty and staff, I neglected to mention a partner for CHQI. And so I want to thank Sunita Mutha and Joe Parrish of the Center for Health Professions of UCSF. This is a treasure. And if you at your campuses are trying to think about how to groom your faculty and staff to get the skill sets that they need to be able to influence across, down and up. Our folks at UCSF Center for Health Professions have been providing curricula through the California Healthcare Foundation and other portals to healthcare care professionals all over the country. So rather than my office reinventing the wheel and, frankly, doing it badly, if my motto is to diminish silos, I have to take that seriously. And part of my work was to find who does it better and certainly could do it better than I can. And no question that the Center for Health Professions at UCSF is fantastic. And each one of our fellows is receiving Leadership and change management training. So we're putting them out through the UCs to help us accomplish the aim. So we thank, thank them for that. All right, so now our next panel will be moderated by my colleague, Bruce Butler, uh, Executive Director of Business Operations in the Office of President. And Bruce is going to be introducing our three speakers, and we're so delighted to have this partnership with the three of you. Thank you. Um, Just as UCs used to compete with one another and go after residents, we're very delighted you're willing to sit on the stage (laughs) with us and with one another. So thank you. And, Bruce, I turn this over to you.
2: Okay. Thank you very much, Terry. And welcome back, everyone, from the lunch break. I'm very honored to uh, be here introducing a panel of representatives of three of the largest health plans. Um, uh, serving the state of California. Um, we'll be hearing from Paul Markovich, the CEO of Blue Shield of California. We'll be hearing from Aldo De La Torre, who's the vice president of provider engagement um, for Anthem Blue Cross. And we'll be hearing from Stephen Sell, who is the president of HealthNet of California. Now, these organizations, as, as you know, uh, collectively, Represent uh, literally thousands and thousands of the employers who every month write premium checks that uh, eventually end up paying for health care for our patients. They also represent literally millions upon millions of individual patients who are also writing checks for co-pays, co-insurance, deductibles, and so on. So as we think about the triple aim um, and how to collaborate effectively in that direction, Um, The triple aim is a very complicated set of goals, Um, sometimes conflicting goals, sometimes um, goals that that, uh, work well together. And we can expect that there there will be a lot of variety and opinions on how best to uh, accomplish those goals, Um, and we can expect that there will be a lot of debate. However, um, those of us who are parents... Uh, would at least like to believe that the people who end up writing those checks um, have opinions that are at least a little bit on the special side. So um, I'm very interested and um, very excited to hear the perspectives of of these um, persons who are representing those interests of the check writers for health care today. So... um, with that, let's move forward, and, and uh, we'll, we'll hear first from Paul.
0: Oh.
3: Paul Markovich, uh, President and CEO of Blue Shield of California. Thank you very much for having me here today. Um, I was, uh, as I was putting together a few slides for the discussion today, a story came to mind I wanted to share that I thought was appropriate, particularly for us. Um, I was around 10 years old growing up, and my, I was a decent swimmer, so my parents decided to put me into this really uh, kind of intense, rigorous swimming class uh, that lasted several months and ended with a, a test that had a really high failure rate of the kids that went through it. And I was the youngest in the group, and I showed up, and after the first session, uh, we had this uh, female drill instructor who was effectively our, our coach giving us the lessons. She just started to continuously critique me. Uh, almost every time I got in the pool, it was a constant, all the things I was doing wrong, all the things I needed to correct. And in my perception, and actually my parents as well, disproportionately focused on me. So I kept going back home, kind of down after every one of these swim practices, um, wondering why it was that the instructor <laughs> disliked me so much. Um, and by the time we got around to the end of the session and I had to go for this test, I thought, why well, did I don't even bother showing up? Uh, and when it was done, of the dozen students that went through it, I ended up being the only one that passed. And uh, you know, this almost militant drill instructor coach came up to me and put her arm around me and told her, congratulated me, and said how proud she was of me. And I couldn't speak. I didn't, couldn't figure out what was going on. I went home with my parents, and I said, I don't get it. <laughs> right? Uh, she was carping at me for three months. Now she likes me? What happened? And uh, that was my parents. It was kind of like a Leave it to Beaver episode, right, with the moral of the story at the end of it. Describe tough love. It's like, no, you know, there's times your fiercest critic is actually your fiercest critic because of how much they care about you and because of how much they believe in you, because they see potential in you. And that was a striking story. I I remember it to this day, and I have experienced it again in sports. I've experienced it in business. that, um, That can very much be the case. And I thought it was appropriate for, as an analogy, given a number of things. First of all, when you look at the affordability crisis I'm about to describe and health reform, we are, as an industry, about to go through a test every bit as daunting as that swimming test I went through and there will be a high failure rate. And last year, in case any of you didn't notice, um, we had quite a negotiation uh, with, between Blue Shield and your medical centers. And I was, in fact, critical of UC at that time. Uh, and I believe then, and I believe even more so now, the more I have talked to you folks, the more I hear Mark give presentations like the one he gave this morning, uh, that you all, with our help, and with I'm sure a lot of change, uh, are going to be able to pass this test with flying colors. So what I wanted to really talk about beyond swimming lessons um, was several things. We have an affordability crisis. It is by far our, our biggest challenge and priority. We can solve it. What we need is will and skill and cooperation. So Why is affordability our top challenge? We talk about the triple aim. I'm going to use two triple aims here. Um, Affordability is the most important, I think, out of clinical quality and patient satisfaction and cost because it's not sustainable, and you'll see why in a moment. Whereas, while it's incredibly important to improve quality and the patient experience, and I'm passionate about that, I wouldn't argue that those are on unsustainable paths, whereas cost clearly is. Fortunately, we need to improve quality in order to improve affordability. So I do not see any tension whatsoever between those goals. And while I look at your own, I know you don't call it a triple aim, but when you look at your mission of saying you're going to treat patients well, you're going to train the physicians of the future, you're going to do world-class research that has an impact on the healthcare system, you're going to do all three of those things. The training of physicians and the research you're doing is under threat if we cannot make Healthcare, the treatment of patients affordable. And so, for all those reasons, affordability is really what allows us to keep pursuing both of these triple aims. Here's what I mean by it not being sustainable. This is data from 2009. Okay, at that point, uh, it cost less to hire a software engineer in India than it did to pay for the health benefits of a software engineer in Silicon Valley. Uh, it cost... Safeway twice as much every quarter to pay for health benefits as it did they paid twice as much for health benefits as they earned an income every quarter. And Starbucks paid as much for coffee beans as they paid for health benefits. And you certainly don't need me to tell me tell you about the challenges that the autos have had in terms of affordability. This is the group that's most likely able to afford health care and that's the situation that they're in. If you look at the government, I'm sure you uh, probably got the memo on this. We're not in great fiscal condition, uh, federally or in the state of California. Um, You've probably been pinched almost as much as anybody has in in terms of the state's funding. But just take a look at this for a minute. Currently, the entire federal budget takes up about 20% of gross domestic product, or 20% of the economy. Within 60 years, status quo, Medicare and Medicaid alone will take up that much of the gross domestic product, if nothing changes. And so the idea that we're just going to keep going where we're going uh, and be able to afford it uh, clearly isn't going to happen. Consumers can't afford it either. This is how much of the last decade or so, the blue line is how much health premiums have gone up, the green line is how much wages have gone up. Uh, And and currently, if you look at the total all-in cost of health care, like what Blue Shield offers and median income, it takes up, it takes the average family of four in California over 25% of their gross income is what a health care policy costs for that family of four. And it's rising. So my point of all this is to say that the money just is not there to pay for trends that we have been experiencing up until this point. It is not sustainable, right? What drives it? Well, the biggest driver by far, and this, these are facts. This is not a value statement. In terms of Blue Shield's contracted rates on a statewide basis in 2000, an acute inpatient bed day cost around $1,875. Apples to apples 2012, it's over $6,600. Um, and which means that you can pay for the, a family of four, five months of food for a family of four, You could put that family of four up in a suite in the Beverly Wilshire Hotel uh, for a week, or they can spend one night in a hospital at Blue Shield's contracted rate on average. Um, And that is the biggest reason premiums have gone up as much as they have. Now, there's very good reasons for that, and we all know them. I just want to make sure you know that I know them, okay? Because what happens right now is... You're treating the uninsured, and you can't squeeze blood out of a rock, right? So you lose huge sums of money as hospitals on the uninsured. You lose money on Medi-Cal, which keeps ratcheting reimbursement down. We lose money on Medicare, generally speaking, because they've been ratcheting reimbursement down. You've got seismic retrofitting, nurse staffing ratios. Of course, you've got to figure out how to train all these folks if you're an academic medical center. And the only place you have to go negotiate is with the folks up here at the table, all right? which you do, and you make pretty much all of your profit in that one place, and then hospitals on average make a little less than 4%. So we we can explain this, right? We all can explain why it's the case. But in many respects, it's like trying to explain to someone who makes minimum wage why a Ferrari costs so much money, okay? It's interesting, and it's not very relevant if they can't afford it. And I'm not suggesting for a moment, I'm not comparing UC to a Ferrari, please don't misunderstand. My point here was just to say, look, if somebody can't afford it, if the money's not there, then explaining why it costs so much is not going to help them afford it. Our job is to figure out collectively how to make this financially sustainable for all of you and for all of us at much lower revenue trend rates so that it is affordable to them. right? Now, one of the other things that pops up in these conversations is, well, we're worth it because we're higher quality, just generally. Again, this is not a UC-specific thing. These are all our hospitals plotted on a relative cost, case mix, severity-adjusted basis, and a relative quality basis. And there is a prize for anyone that can find a relationship between these two things. There's a lot of scientists out here, I know, a lot of people that would probably know math pretty well. We've yet to be able to find a connection between the two. So... As we looked at this, we said, okay, fine, that's the picture, you understand it, we understand it, that's our challenge. Um, what do we do about it? And what's clear, and this is not, I think, unique to Blue Shield, but what is clear is traditional methods won't solve this crisis. If we stay in the same working relationship as we've had in the past, it's not going to work. We've taken a look at this, we've benchmarked the country, we've benchmarked the state, and said, okay, if we just were the best of the best at all these different things, what would happen to our price within, you know, 10 years' time? And it turns out our prices would double about a year later than they otherwise would. So instead of doubling in eight years, they'd double in seven years. Okay? That does not help us out. We need to break out of that box, think differently, work differently, be far more collaborative if this is going to work. So as I said at the beginning, we need will and skill. Will meaning it's a priority for all of us to say and it's our top priority to figure out how to make the system affordable and apply that everywhere. How do we train physicians in a way that's less expensive and highly effective? How is it that we do research that really helps drive affordability in the system and make that a priority, right? Um, Skill. There's a whole bunch of things we need to do. This is not an exhaustive list, but pooling a large, statistically significant population in a concentrated geographic area, figuring out how to forecast what they're going to cost, and then finally being able to mobilize and manage that population in a way that lowers the cost are the key skills that are going to be required. This is my last slide. Um, This is one of the main reasons I said at the beginning how excited I am and how convinced I am that we're, uh, you and we are ready to work together in a way to solve this issue, which is we have our, we're already doing it. Last year, City and County of San Francisco, which has been experiencing high single-digit, low double-digit premium trends for as, about as far as the eye can see, we sat down and said, we're going to change that. We're going to work together with UCSF, with Hill Physicians, with Dignity Health. In this area, we're going to take that population and we're going to make the healthcare trend, 0% for that group, 0%. In total, we saved about $10 million for the city and county of San Francisco, over a million of that just with this, what we call ACO. But we sat down, worked together, figured out a number of interventions, and hit it. And this is the way, I think, whether it's this way or different alternatives, setting this up, lining up our incentives, Figuring out how to work together much more closely, whether it's with Blue Shield or another health plan, I think is the way that we're going to try and solve this affordability crisis and uh, and pass our swim test. So with that, I thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Paul. And, and your your comments along the lines that the um, the reasons why the car is so expensive aren't Extremely interesting if you can't afford it to begin with, or a great takeaway um, for all of us. Um, Next, I'll introduce Aldo De La Torre, um, who who will um, take a a different twist on the topic um, and focus a little bit more on um, the patient perspective.
0: I'll be much more optimistic, I promise. (laughs) Um, good afternoon, Aldo De Torre, uh, Vice President, Provider Contracting for Anthem Blue Cross. Um, thank you to Dr. Sobo and the rest of the UC um, Office of the President for the invitation to be here today. So uh, similar to Paul, um, you know, I'm not going to repeat um, the statistics and facts. I think that they're pretty apparent. I think that you're, you're well versed in the subject matter. Um, so when I was asked to participate in this panel, um, I said, oh, great, I, I look forward to it. Ten minutes, Paul Markovich, I could sit down and have a discussion. Um, and, but I struggled to put the deck together, and Terry Leach knows that because I was late. And the reason I did is, you know, not the reason you might think. Uh, because the topic was um, examples of provider-payer collaboration that promote or um, aim to get to the triple, so the triple aim, excuse me. Um, four or five years ago, it probably would have been because I didn't have a whole lot to, to demonstrate and show you. Um, I struggled this time because I had lots of activity and I didn't know which ones I wanted to display for you in 10 minutes, and I may not be able to get through both of them, so I apologize. Um, but the main point, the takeaway from what I'm describing to you is that what has changed. Um, and what has changed that's different um, is not necessarily a program or an initiative that I'm going to describe for you. Yes, there, there are tactics that I can display for you, but it's, it's that we're actually talking to providers, and we're talking to hospitals. The dialogue is so different now. There is a a feeling of aligned incentives, a feeling that um, together uh, we can bring a solution to the problems that that Paul has laid out. Um, that we no longer sit in a room and point the finger at each other for the um, the lack of performance in the system we've created. Um, that we actually are very encouraged with the dialogue that occurs with. Most providers, um, um, not all there are some that want to party till the lights go out and they 'll get their wish if they continue the, in, during the path they 're going so um, I just want to say that there is from our standpoint a feeling of of confidence that the current crisis has created a, the right kind of conversation that is occurring and that allows us to leverage our, our capabilities and produce results. And it may take a little bit of time, but we'll, we'll get there. It's it's not a cliff-vesting situation. We we need to kind of work to get there, but I'm very encouraged. So with that, since, um, the statistic you have here in front of you, uh, of the $3 trillion in U.S. health care spend, um, 750 of that is estimated to be waste. And for that spend, we rank last or next to last in quality and access efficiency. So... We have great opportunity, um, and and the the basis for my presentation will kind of hinge on this piece. Um, There is an opportunity to eliminate the waste and begin the process there. And so the two programs I intend to share with you today um, really aim to get at this figure. Um, They have um, ancillary effects, yes, uh, and they're not just a complete toolkit, but they certainly will help produce the results we want to begin to um, get at this number. So some studies here. Many of you, um, because of your background, probably have read some of these studies, and um, I worry that they've been updated. I'm not actually accurate here, so I apologize. But I was told by um, my medical director that I'm, I'm pretty safe. So um, it is estimated that we have about 98,000, up to 98,000 patients die a year as a result of consequences of medical errors. Uh, in California, uh, we have hospital-acquired infections that are estimated to cost the, the system about $1.6 billion. So we can go on and on in their studies, more studies that would suggest that there is a huge opportunity to produce some results in this area. And so one of the programs I want to introduce to you today is one that um, Anthem participates in, uh, but it benefits the entire community. Uh, it is not the sole program. There are other efforts, similar efforts, but I think it's a demonstration of how Anthem has um, Reached out, or how the partner parties, Anthem, Blue Shield, Health, and that all folks, I think, aspire to have similar programs. Um, we, we all understand that it's really about execution. Um, and so, but today's is just kind of an introduction to the Patient Safety First program um, that Anthem uh, funded. We played a role in it. Obviously, there are many other parties, and I think the, t- the takeaway here is that um, it was a collaborative effort between a payer. And a provider organization, and the hospitals in themselves. So again, demonstrating back to my earlier point that these are collaborative efforts um, where the system has come together to try to produce some results. So the Patient Safety First initiative is a, a California health partnership. It is a partnership that Anthem funded uh, with the California Hospital Association, which is made up of the Northern California Hospital Association. Uh, the Central California Hospital Association, and and the National Health Foundation. So this collaborative um, is is one that we have some results on we want to share with you today. the Anthem's role in this, this program was to fund an initiative. Uh, we've, we've, we agreed to fund a three-year initiative with about $6 million uh, intended to you know, unite the hospitals throughout the state uh, with common goals and direction uh, to fund those learning labs. So because there, there's a lot of variation um, in the results amongst hospitals and if they could come together and share best practices and if there's a real low infection rate in one hospital and a very high one in another, well, there, there's a learning there that could be had that could produce some results for us. So we used our role. Um, we're not clinicians. We're a health plan. But we could finance a solution that would bring the parties together to produce the results. And so, again, it's, it's just time to leverage our role in the healthcare system. So, the, the, I think the biggest issue is where do we start first? Um, so, uh, with the Hospital Association, and probably many of you who may participate in this alliance, um, we landed on sepsis, um, hospital acquired infections, uh, perinatal care, uh, particularly the one that was really important to us, where we saw that a huge opportunity was non medically indicated uh, elective deliveries prior to 39 weeks. And so I know that we've had some pretty strong goals, and we work with the March of Dimes on this particular initiative. And I have some new data that's not reflected in the slides that was provided to me today, but it appears that we've, we've hit our target of less than 5%. So um, that's good news. But I'll share with you some of the results. And, again, I'm, I'm staying pretty high level because I want to leave time for the panel. So my apologies if, if I don't dig deep into this. So we're in the second year, so we use the 2009 as a baseline period. In 2010 and 2011, this is a 2011 financial result. Uh, We don't have 2012 yet, but that will be coming in the door pretty soon. Again, the National Health Foundation aggregates the data and does the measurements for us. But you can see we've made uh, significant progress in the areas in which we targeted. Uh, The estimated savings is about $19 million. Um, It's probably larger than that. I think they use average costs in in California, as Paul indicated, average costs have a different meaning in terms of what that represents. And so this was the data that was compiled, and it shows that there's a tremendous amount of effort here that was put forward. Um, And while the savings or $20 million and they're meaningful, they may not be substantial in terms of bending the, the cost trend. I think the message is that uh, this is an initial step, but it demonstrates how, people, how the different elements of the healthcare care system can work together to produce the results that, that we all desire, the triple aim. So we continue to fund this, and we will continue to fund this initiative going forward as well. So at the end, it was a win-win. We, we, National Health Foundation concluded that we saved lives through this effort, that we reduce non medically necessary indicated premature deliveries, and we reduce costs and we improve quality so uh, all elements of the triple aim so this is a program that I think ties back to the the, um, the title of this particular a segment of your of your conference uh, where partners uh, where providers and payers have collaborated to produce results. Um, I also want to share with you that. And this is, you know, we, we, don't, we try to tie our programs to t- together to have consistent results. And what I mean by that is we want to make sure that they all link up. So, uh, Anthem, I believe, um, uh, last I checked, was the, the, the only carrier um, that offers a quality hospital incentive program. And many of those, those, those measures in our patient safety program are embedded in the quality hospital, um, the QHIP program, quality hospital program bonus program and what 's interesting here is that this is, is uh, six hundred and eighty six hospitals, seventy percent of the anthem admissions throughout the country. This is a, a well point slide it is not an anthem blue cross slide um, have, have committed to better quality and have put money on the table to do it, meaning that if they don 't produce the results that we desire, that they will walk away from, uni- from increases in their contracts. If they achieve the results, then those, they will materialize they will get what they negotiated. But it is a, again, the the message here is that you have now um, hospitals for the first time willing to contribute to the quality issue and and so much so that they're willing to put financial resources at risk uh, to to back up that commitment. Uh, The second program uh, is what we label a patient-centered primary care program at Anthem. It's um, also known by many names. It goes by ACO. It goes by AICU. I can go by patient-centered medical home. In the end, we're just trying to get away from acronyms to begin with. And it's um, our intent to just transform how we do business with our physicians. Um, in, in this particular program, I would argue there's a fourth aim, um, it's clinician satisfaction. There are many things that we do today that irritate, um, cause redundancy in, in the delivery of medicine, That if we had a different program, if we had better clinician clinician satisfaction, we would hope that more more individuals would look to get into the field of primary care uh, because we do have a shortage there. So we do aim for the triple aim, but we also have a. a, We are looking for the fourth as well, which is the clinician satisfaction, as we try to encourage more physicians to remain in practice, not leave for concierge medicine um, or leave entirely to do something else, and then also encourage. uh, others to look to primary care as a profession. And so we're trying to change the model, the frustrating elements that uh, are, you know, manifested today in our contracts. So uh, why do we need patient-centered primary care? Um, I think it's well-documented, some of the shortcomings of the system. Um, I've listed out about six here for you. I don't think that they're going to shock you a whole lot. Um, I think what I would like to focus on here in my time is that uh, I, my contracts uh, encourage you to treat and treat and treat. Um, when many times you want to provide care and support, and I don't recognize that, and so I don't, I don't emphasize that. So I think these programs that we're, we're launching here with uh, many, including uh, UC Davis and UCLA, hopefully at the, uh, towards the end of this year, and, and UCSF, um, will will change kind of the, the value proposition of how we contract with each other where there we're, it's a shared um, goal, I uh, would call it a shared p l where we pay for care and support, not just treatment, uh, where we we share with you the rewards of your efforts. So this is not a situation where um, you treat, we pay, we don't talk to each other. So this is really intended to change the, the model of reimbursement from volume to value or create a different line of incentive while still focusing on, on quality because the, the, the additional funds uh, can be meaningful, but they can only, be, they can only occur – is if you produce the, res- uh, the quality results, you hit the quality benchmarks. So it does tie everything together nicely. The, we talk about the triple aim, and so I thought I'd just leave you with this. What does the triple aim look like? Uh, and so the, this is what it looks like to, to Anthem. This is a member who's enrolled in one of our programs. Um, if you look, you'll see that not only did we save cost, that's important, we need affordability, but you can see that as depression screening improves significantly. So we did not restrict care. Uh, if, you, if you talk to this gentleman, he'll tell you that he finally got the support that he needed. He was getting plenty of treatment. He was just not getting the support or, the, or that he needed. So I think that this individual and this result, while one, represents and basically is the triple aim. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Aldo. Uh, many of us that, that have spent... Um, uh, most or all of our careers in the healthcare system um, sometimes get a little bit brainwashed that that high quality is correlated with high cost, and the, the scatter plot that that Paul showed, and um, all those comments demonstrated that in fact the opposite can be true, and we also heard that from from some of the exciting work um, from our fellows this morning. So that's that's extremely encouraging. Um, I'm beginning to suspect that it's it's not a coincidence that the last um, speaker in our series here will be addressing population health after we've heard about um, quality and the patient experience and after we've heard about the affordability crisis. Uh, I think those three things represent something called the the triple aim. So please please welcome uh, Steve Sale from uh, HealthNet.
4: Good afternoon, and uh, thanks for having me here today. Um, uh, I've enjoyed the conversation so far, and I know we're a little tight on time. So I thought I would try to start by answering the question, um, kind of giving you the punchline, uh, and then we can give a few examples around that. But the, the question is, What are health plans looking for from providers as it relates to the triple aim around achieving uh, affordability, uh, quality of care, and and, and, uh, positive or improvement in the patient experience? And I think there's really three things from our experience working with all of you and providers throughout the state and the West. The first is really kind of what Mark talked about this morning, Paul talked about it, which is a sense of urgency. I think we need to have a tremendous sense of urgency around the challenge that purchasers face. The people who actually write the checks are the purchasers. The federal government, state government, large employers. You see as an employer is the second largest purchaser of health in the state of California. And the budgets are breaking. Two is really a commitment to integrated, coordinated care and working together, all of us, to deliver a product that meets the goals of the Triple Aim. That includes leadership, like you've seen here, really stepping out and saying we need to be more than what we are today, and we need to work together to look at those three things together, data that's being shared, and teams working together. The last thing I would say, which is really an important one, is shared ownership on outcomes. We need to collectively share what the outcome is. Paul talked about the affordability challenge. In a lot of places, there's a budget, and that's what we have to live within. So we're going to have to figure out how to work together to make that happen. Um, So that's kind of the punchline. Let me give you a little bit of context, and I'll try to move through this kind of quickly. HealthNet works with multiple populations. These populations are in multiple communities. Um, They oftentimes are defined by a purchaser who comes to us, CMS on Medicare, Department of Health Care Services on Medi-Cal. We're the largest Medi-Cal provider in the state. Uh, The University of California is an employer saying, here's what we're wrestling with and how we need to design benefits or come up with solutions that can meet an overall budget for us. And so these different purchasers bring challenges to the table that we spend time thinking about how can we solve that. The biggest lever that we have to solve that is to work with you to talk about a discrete population and what that means for us. In California, the dual-eligible pilot expansion in Los Angeles will be the largest expansion of dual eligibles. These are people who are eligible for Medi-Cal and Medicare, it will be the largest expansion in the country. 200, 300,000 people who are incredibly ill, consuming 30, $35,000 a year per person, will be moved into a managed, coordinated program in which a budget will be set and collectively will work with a very tailored network of providers to try and deliver on that. These people have very unique needs. Mental health is a huge issue for this population. How we integrate that with the delivery of physical health will make or break that. The whole country will look at it. I think there's like seven regulatory bodies that will have oversight on this and be looking at it. But it's a huge opportunity for us. And so when we talk about the triple aim and populations, we need to define what those populations are and what their needs are. We can't treat all of them uh, the same way. And oftentimes it's at a geographic level. And I'll give some examples around that. One tool that we've used that has been very effective is to channel volume, to take people and say, we're not going to work with all providers. We're going to work with a discrete group of providers. You saw data on cost and quality. In a geography, you can have massive variances on the cost of care that's delivered for the same person with the same condition depending upon what system they're deliver- they're receiving that care through. And so what we've done is in all of our lines of business, but this shows you our commercial business, is really built tailored networks, and today it represents over a third of our our membership. We expect in the next two years it'll go over 50% and maybe 60 to 70%. To bring it home for you, the University of California at the end of 2009 and 2010 said, we're dealing with furloughs, we're dealing with layoffs, we're dealing with a state budget cut. We need to come up with something different that can help us meet the needs of our population, and so we designed the Blue and Gold Network that's reduced the full network by about a third, so it's roughly two-thirds the size of that full network, to deliver care. The first year was 2011. The second year was 2012. Together, UC and Health Net have validated that we've saved about $72 million in those two years by delivering that through the Blue and Gold Network. And now we're into the third year, and we're iterating Um, And evolving that program, we built an ACO in San Francisco that I'll tell you about. We're looking at ACOs in other places. We've leveraged dual risk relationships with key providers to help make that happen. But many of the elements that we talk about, integrated and coordinated care, working off that fixed budget, a sense of urgency, are starting to come through for the University of California because of the issues that, that I talked about. Improving the health of the population, really the keys are shared goals. How can we work together in San Francisco, in San Diego, in Los Angeles to say, what are the issues that this population is is facing? How do we set a budget? What does that mean for the emergency department? What does that mean for inpatient? Um, How can we work on care transitions in a better place? What about alternative types of delivery? You had a rich panel on telemedicine, huge opportunity to meet the needs of people in an accessible way and do it for, at a more affordable price. Retail clinics, another place that's evolving over time. All of that is are tools that are available to us to serve the needs of the population. We spend a lot of time in integrated partnerships identifying people and we tend to place them in buckets of care that could be delivered to them. Who are the people with the greatest need? What's the right place for us to deliver that? In the old model, in which we're a check writer and you're the delivery arm, that's not very coordinated. The new model is really around we don't care whether we do it or whether you do it. The most important thing is that that individual gets the right care at the right time. In an state like California with various delivery models, that may be different in San Diego versus in Sacramento. And in San Diego, it may be different from two delivery systems because the tools that they've got are different. So we need to link together through provider portals by getting that data together, by having rev- regular governance reviews around a population to say, how are we doing and continuing to approve it? On reducing per capita costs of care, the simple point of this is there are a range of payment models that we've got. If you move from the left to the right, you find yourselves getting much more integrated, much more moving towards a budget-based approach, um, and you find yourself in a world in which things are much more coordinated, shared, there's greater transparency between us, and when we talk about that shared outcome, you have a regular idea around how you're doing around that. Different parts of the delivery system have different capabilities as it relates to this. And I think part of our challenge as health plans is to meet you where you're at, and you may be in, in one place in, in L.A. and in another place in San Diego to work with you on that evolution. But we want to move you along this model over time so collectively we can meet the needs that I talked about and the goals at the very beginning. A quick example is the difference between a shared risk model versus a, a dual or full risk model. The simple explanation around that is there's a budget for physician services and fee-for-service that's shared risk between us on on the facility side. The other is there's a global risk, that that there's a budget that we all manage to. When you normalize this and you look at it in California on average, when you do it on a budget-based approach, you run 22% less than you do on a shared risk model. There are many models that go beyond this. As you move from the, the bottom up to the top, you begin to get in an ACO budget, in which it's not just a global budget, but it's a global budget which is a three-way share. So in San Francisco, we set a target for 2013, which was a 0% trend. That was 10% less on a base of about $66 million. So the savings is roughly $6 million for the University of California. If we miss, HealthNet will write a check, UCSF will write a check, Hill will write a check, and Dignity will write a check. That is shared accountability. We are all in the check-writing business, is my, is my message, as we look at coordinating and doing this together. And so that creates really great incentives. Earlier this week, we had our governance meeting model. Reese Foley from UCSF was there. Daryl Cardoza from Hill. We were saying, how can we work this in a better way? Are, is the clinical team getting what they need at the ground to affect things? We approved a $200,000 budget for the clinical team to empower them on the ground to be making smarter decisions so they wouldn't get caught up in the bureaucracy of our organizations. We're bureaucratic, maybe you're not. But what we found was speed and the ability to give people an opportunity to deliver is really a very powerful mechanism. Quick point on the right, because I'm running out of time, is annual trend increases in healthcare that purchasers are looking for is less than the consumer price index they're looking for 2s and 3s we've been up in the 8 9 10 11 that's Paul's point about it's not sustainable but but that's what's happening and is forcing us to work in a different way which from my perspective is tremendously exciting and gives us great opportunity the individual experience of the member i would tell you that all of us up here in, in coordination with you are lagging Kaiser. The individual experience data that people are having in the Kaiser system, relative to what they're having through us, no matter which plan you're talking about, there is a gap. The way we will close that is by coordinating and giving people what they need at the right time, regardless of who delivers that service. We will integrate data, we will link it into a a portal that they're able to access. All of that will enable us to retain people who want to get their care through us, and meet the savings goals that we've got. That individual experience is incredibly powerful, and we're moving to a world in which individuals are going to have more choices about where they want to go. So to be successful, we're going to need to work together to do that. Real quick on this, this is what we did in San Francisco, saved $6 million. It really was around shared accountability and governance, worked really hard to say, how can we manage the overall population and improve it overall and so set discrete initiatives that we work around to do that. The integration of behavioral with medical is a key part of that. Repatriation, it's a defined network. We've never really thought about if someone goes someplace else to get that care, how do we handle that? When it's a defined network and there's a budget and we're all on the hook, we're working a lot harder on how do we get that person into UCSF, how do we get them into Hill so they can get their care managed and delivered through us. And we've set up a care transitions manager who can work around that member experience. Just in the last month, we had someone Friday night ready to make the move from the hospital to a skilled nursing facility. We had a transportation gap. We couldn't get it closed. In the past, that person would have spent the weekend in the hospital. Superstar case manager worked really hard in coordination with others to make that happen and get that person there. Better experience for the member, better on the cost side, and overall better for the population. So wrapping up, we're looking for a sense of urgency. We're looking for a commitment towards integrated and coordinated care. And finally, shared accountability around outcomes. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Stephen. Now, the material that you covered with us really loops back in my mind to the analogy of, of the car, because when we're talking about a budgeted care model or, or a per capita cost model, it recognizes that nobody really cares about how much the, sparks, the spark plugs cost or the air filters cost. The answer is here's what can be afforded, and then it's our job as providers to, to figure out how to deliver quality care within that budget.
5: Mark Laird at uh, UCSF. And <laughs> I'm sorry, could you your repeat your name? What <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to know was, uh, you know, we've been working on this in UC. We're not satisfied with our pace of progress, but we, I think we intellectually know what needs to be done. I wonder if you, uh, how you'd view UC relative to other systems that you're working with in the state, and uh, are there lessons that we should learn about how we could be uh, quicker or better in terms of adapting uh, new, new standards? So,
2: um,
4: Mark, I got to start in the slide. So, Mark, I would say that um, UC is unique in that you're very distributed, right? So you're in a whole bunch of different um, geographic areas, and the delivery model in every single one of those is, is, is different. Right, so um, UCSF in in San Francisco, um, it's it's really kind of a two horse town in terms of how healthcare gets delivered, and it, it has some natural abilities to probably move a little bit more rapidly than in some other areas, which is a little bit more fragmented. Um, what I what I would say is the integration of the facility and the physician component at the table. Um, is incredibly important there are some systems that uh, in more ways than UC does have that together, primary specialty and facility and it allows it allows some, some more rapid movement. but I think uh, I would say there's always an opportunity to go, go more rapidly, but I think I'm doing pretty well. Oh, okay I,
3: um, I, yeah i I'd say bottom line is, Mark, you, uh, what, when we've experienced it going at its fastest, most successful rate, and I know both you and Dr. Stobo are probably going to be very disappointed to hear this, but is um, you have to spend time at the top, which means you probably have to spend time with me. That's what I meant about the disappointment, um, potentially. It really has to start at the top of the organization with a philosophical commitment, and then we have to figure out how we're going to break through our behavioral Norms within our organizations. And I have, um, you know, we had the biggest head start with um, Hill Physicians and Dignity Health in Sacramento, where we've been working on this the longest. We sit down every quarter, we go through what's going on, and we say, what do we need to do to keep this train moving? And, you know, I actually was just meeting with the CEO of Dignity Health uh, yesterday on, on a quest- that same kind of question. I don't know how else to do it. Uh, I, I would rate you guys as above average in terms of what you want to do and what you're doing now on the ground, for example with us. And if we want to move the train faster, I, th- I think you're stuck spending a little more time with me. Yeah.
0: Sorry. <laughs> uh, so Mark, we're, we're probably, um, we've been in the ACO space back with the Dartmouth Brookings Award um, down in Southern California since uh, for three or four years now. but. Um, We've been in the PPO space, which makes it a little bit particularly more difficult because there's no assignment, there's no benefit plan that kind of forces engagement. It's all in the values in the, the eye of the member who's being introduced to this program. Um, I would say, though, that all folks kind of struggle with the transition. Uh, I don't think UC is any different than that. We are um, in the beginning stages of our discussions with UC about our ACO programs. Um, We've seen a lot of successful efforts on the HMO side because, obviously, I think it's well ingrained, has a history, it has certain advantages. Um, But as far as you see, I I would kind of echo what what Steve says. I think it varies by which campus you might be talking about, in their environment and how integrated they are. Um, You know, if I am going to call on on UCLA and David, you know, they had this massive Epic conversion, so now they're on Epic. Um, They're they're well. organized, the the data flows can happen much quicker, um, so I think that the speed of adoption is based on how quickly we can get the data integrated into your workflows. It's not enough to say, here's a report, or here's a website, go click on it. Yeah, your physicians are very busy. There has to be a way that the data makes its way into your records so they can integrate. So I think the adoption, if you're philosophically aligned, that's the right way to go. That's the first step. Right? Two, we can make the financial model work. It's, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, there's no secret sauce. I don't believe there may be some variations here or there. Um, So I would agree with Paul, it all depends on how important it is to you to emphasize that to the staff that this is the way we need to go and we need to partner a very different way. Um, But I would think that that the adoption level between you and the other groups is based on the the care management capabilities inside inside the organization and the IT infrastructure that exists. Those are are two highly correlated uh, features to successful ACL.
6: Hi, I'm Maurice Herbal, and I'm actually with United. And I just wanted to draw attention to something that we're all witnessing here today. I mean, if you look back 20 years ago, this conversation very likely would not be occurring, you know. And, you know, just internally, I just want to applaud, you know, all the payers are here because we want to accomplish exactly the same thing that all of you want to accomplish, right, which is we want to get high-quality care to the members at an affordable cost. And I want to just draw attention to a friend of mine that I bumped into said, oh, so you went over to the dark side. You know, I don't have the hang ups because I'm younger about the relationship between <laughs> the payers and the provider community, you know, which historically has been two different sides of a battlefield, right? Each one in their own trench. Well, right now, we're both in the same trench, and we're both facing a common opponent, which is affordability. So... So I would like to challenge all of you to take a look at how you think of our working relationship with all of you, because we really do want to partner with the providers to do what we need to do. Thank you.
5: Um, I'm Talmadge King. I'm at UCSF. Um, What are the three of you doing to work together to help make things better?
3: Um, yeah, actually, it's a it's a great question. One of the things we are working together on, and uh, is that Blue Shield of California actually funded a joint project where Anthem Blue Cross, it turns out, United, and Blue Shield, and I, I suspect at some point we'll get HealthNet to come along as well. We're actually bringing all of our claims together, mm-hmm. and we're we've filed to. Um, include the Medicare claims as well, both physician and hospital, so that we can have an entire data set and be able to do uh, analysis, statistically valid, appropriate analysis at the individual physician level, at the individual hospital level, and the community level, and understand uh, quality of health care and potential variations in that care. Uh, and so that's still very much in the early stages, but I would say that's probably and that's not the only example, I think, of um, some industry cooperation. Uh, but that is one example of us coming together saying, we get it. There's some, there's some issues here to solve. where we're going to be competing like the Dickens day-to-day on certain items. But on others, we're in far better shape if we figure out how to work together and move the industry to a, to a, a different level.
4: Yeah. I, my, my comment would be... Um there, there's enough things for us to compete on that um, collaborate in certain areas can sort of move the system forward. So, you know, we have nine partnership ACO-like arrangements, and in almost all of those there's at least one other health plan that has a relationship with that delivery system. So I'll use San Francisco because it's close to all of you. But the teams that are working on the ACO that Paul talked about the one that I talked about have a lot of overlap. And the funding that's going into those is being designed to enable both of those to go forward. And so there's a lot of coordination collaboration. We can't look at the population that Paul's talking about and vice versa, but I think when you think about the teams, when you think about the data norms, uh, when you think about the platforms, um, there, there's a lot of opportunity for standardization that can help that.
5: Can I follow up for a second?
4: Because you can't. The, I can't see how,
5: well, I have trouble buying the argument that it costs too much. Um, and that that's the problem. Because until until the people with the money decide that they really are going to work together to help reduce some costs. So as a doctor, one of the things that would change my life overnight, if I had one form to fill out for everything that I do. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and, and there's no movement to, to really make that happen. So, that, so, that, so that it makes it very easy for me to do it. And so I'm, I think most of us really, we see the numbers. But when we quietly sit down with, by ourselves and look at it, we don't really believe you. We don't believe that, it, that it's really that big a problem. We, we know that, the, that at the end of the day, we are spending the money. And really, people are not really trying really hard to do it, because all we're doing is playing at the edges. And if we really wanted to make the system work, we'd develop universal health care. We don't want it to work. So everything we're doing is just playing around the edges, and, and we're going to keep doing that, and that then tells me there's enough money. So what we're fighting over is who's going to get that money, but there's enough money.
3: Yeah, I'd- well, I'd say I disagree, <laughs> obviously, I? from my comments before, but I, just, I guess one thing I'd ask you to consider is what proof points would you need to see from the people that are paying the bills or the people up on the stage to say, no, affordability is a problem. So if you could, you know, I'd just encourage you to think about that. <laughs> so with
2: that, um, please, uh, please join me in, in thanking our guests today.